words telling him I love him. Thank you for life, Jesus. Thank you for purpose, God. Because that's what he wants from us. I love the milk of the word. He wants to bring us on, but you know what? If this isn't laid root and, and become a foundation in our life, there's no, there's no meat, there's no reason for meat in your life. He wants this thing first in your life, guys. He wants all our hearts. It's what we were created for. To be exalted and lifted up. That's the end, the culmination of the ages. That's what's going to happen. Every knee will bow. There is coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I love it, John. Revelation, what John sees. I know you guys probably heard me say it before, but what John was expressing in his language is a word he didn't know how to express where he says in English, ten thousands upon ten thousands were worshiping and serving him daily. What he said was, as far as I could see, I don't have a number to express this. Imagine that. Imagine you were, any of you guys been in a high place, prudential building, or on a mountain or something, and as far as you can see, you see one thing, an exalted king, and all that you see around him, all creation, doing one thing, worshiping him. 70 years is short, 80 years, 60 years. I'm going to trumpet this message till I die. Make your life count for something. You have one life, guys. I have one life. This is something that we need to preach and speak to ourselves daily. Adjust our perspectives. It's not about vocation. It's about not about going to school or going preaching or going into ministry full-time or being a doctor full-time. Those things are secondary. You know what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Rejoice in the Lord always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is your this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Whoa! What do we maximize and what do we minimize? That's after the simplicity of devotion from our heart, guys. Out of that, I tell you, will come the roar of the execution of his will from your life. If you would simply surrender yourself to the place of devotion and trust and reliance, the relinquishing of your rights before Jesus. And you know what? In the revelation of his worthiness, this is an easy thing. The king of all kings lives in you. Amen. So let's take some offering out of that revelation. Life is short. It's frail. God wants all of you, and this is just an extension of it, guys. I know a lot of you guys, there might be new people here, but those who are connected, those who are feeling apart, moving with the vision of J-Hop, you guys know that we're moving in the right direction. There's such, there's such a good feeling inside of me about where God's taken, taking His body and all those who would say yes to His heart in this hour. And I just want to encourage you to be part of it on this front, guys, here at J-Hop. Just take an offering. Amen. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close Nothing can compare your all-living hope. Your presence, Lord. And I've tasted and seen the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free. I'm done. 
are welcomed here. Be in our midst. God, as we transition into the preaching of the word, God, I ask, Lord, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive that which you would want to give us today through your word, Jesus, the daily bread, the word of life. God, come, increase. Lord, I ask, God, that you would rest, your spirit would rest upon Bethany. Lord, that you would give her clarity of mind and words, Father, that the power of the Holy Spirit would fill her with strength. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Um, just a couple of announcements. Sorry, I was going to do that for you. Um, um, we generally do. I think everybody here tonight pretty much is uh, privy to our schedule here. Um, we have prayer sets throughout the week that we are really trying to um, get people involved in. Um, so if you're here in the city, uh, we want to welcome you to some of our early morning prayer sets. In some of our evening sets, we pretty much break it down to two-hour blocks. Tuesday through Friday, we do morning sets from 6.30 to 8.30 in the morning. That may be pretty early. It is, but it's glorious. It's such a wonderful connection uh, with God and His Word and His presence. So I want to encourage you, if you're in the area, come out for some of them. Get filled and refreshed before you go out to school or work, whatever it is that you do. And then also our Wednesday and Saturday evenings, uh, they're just an awesome time in the Lord as we come and gather and pray for our city, pray for churches, just the whole gamut, pray for college campuses. We're just so engaged in asking God for the full release of His presence and Spirit over this region. So I want to encourage you to get plugged in uh, uh, to some of those things. If you uh, really want more detail than what I'm saying yet, uh, tonight, there's outside on the little table as you come in, there's these little uh, uh, pieces of paper. They're, they're like these J-Hop... Uh, Schedules. You can just get them, and this is a way to you know put them in your fridge, put them on your books, whatever you do, do it. Uh, just a way to stay uh, in in contact. All right. Amen. All right. Hey guys. I'm just trying to make sure I have my phone nearby because we all know that when it comes to time, I usually run way over. And I try to. <laughs> Last week was Super Bowl Sunday, and I was like determined to make sure we got everybody out of here in a timely manner so everybody could watch the Super Bowl. But I think we. But I think it was 6.30 and there were still people being prayed over, which was not my fault or my doing because people chose to say for prayer, right? <laughs> um, but we went way, way over. Um, but at my husband's council, um, pretty much what I'm going to do is use the first like 10 minutes to actually recap le- last week and then we're going to move on from there um, to kind of move in the direction that we um, could have and should have last week, but just for sake of time. So you're going to have to really just pardon me if I'm a little emotional today. I've had a, a wonderfully long week. It's, um, it's been a very good, good week. Um, just even like part of what we're going to be go- touching on today is prophetic history, um, but just a lot of emotion. I spent a couple days in Kansas City with some of our... Um, other J-Hop leaders and with Lou and this is really the essence of what we discussed probably one day a 13 hour day um, from 9 in the morning till 10 11 o'clock at night we were together Um, and just kind of recounting the way that the Lord has called us and drawn us and led us in the past but also really dreaming as far as the future 
and where we're going. Um, so it was hugely encouraging, but it is deeply emotional for me, just be um, in a good sense as far as just the Spirit of God just really affirming and confirming and solidifying some things. Um, so pretty much what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a couple minutes to recap our prophetic history for those of you that weren't here. Um, and then we're actually we're going to move into, so you can really have understanding as a ministry, um, kind of the intensity of focus that we have upon particular things, where we draw them from biblically, and um, how the Lord has really marked us and stamped us, and why we take the posture that we do in some ways. Um, but how many of you, can I just see a show of hands, how many were you, you were here last week to hear prophetic history? A lot of you weren't. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go really, I'm just going to highlight the key points then, because I, I probably took, what, like an hour last week? <laughs> and we didn't even, like, go over all of it. Um, but in short, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Bethany Temple. Um, in high school, my heart was rocked radically by the Spirit of God, but also specifically burning for revival. Revival history was really the essence of what my heart burned for. I love to study, but it was in those, I'm just going to throw some things out to you. Um, John Whitrip was the first governor of Massachusetts aboard the Arabella. He wrote a document called A Model for Christian Charity. I highly recommend that you read it. I read it, uh, portions of it last week, but in essence, he basically was articulating on paper the dream of God's heart for Massachusetts and New England, that it would be a city set upon a hill and a light to all people. And it was in those early high school years that my heart really was marked for New England forever, really. I know that from the nations of the earth that, that that's where God has called us to labor, but New England really um, is where my heart began to burn. But So John Whitthrop, as far as reading the way that this land was covenanted to the Lord, but also reading revival history, you have Finney, you have... Um, John Whitfield, uh, Whitfield, I'm sorry, George Whitfield, all of these fathers of revival, but really it was Jonathan Edwards that really marked my heart. And I'm going to throw another out to you. He actually wrote a document called A Humble Attempt. And in A Humble Attempt, basically what he articulated was <coughs> that there would be an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. And what he said is it would be the fulfillment of end time scriptures as it was prophesied in Zechariah. But he was setting it forth for the pastors of Boston. He basically was saying, let this be our experiment. Could we see an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth? And it was really reading those documents in my high school years that I began to say, number one, we were set apart for this purpose to be a city set upon a hill. But number two, could we see an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth? That's what my heart began to burn for. So basically from 96 to 99, I really devoted my life to prayer and fasting. That's really just what I did. I felt called to the place of prayer, called to fast. And it was through that time, 99 to 2000, that I met Lou Engel um, with the call. I shared all that last week. Su supernatural events beyond my control where God just really knit our hearts together and opened the door. Um, to, in 2001, we had the call New England. And lo and behold, my portion of the call was actually to read the prayer of um, Jonathan Edwards, his covenant as far as a humble attempt, that there would be an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel. So it was actually kind of the years that had, of things that had been burning upon my heart, the Lord then was actually confirming and speaking, and so that was kind of my role was to re-covenant that we would see that in our generation. Um, from there, fast forward, I shared about from the, after the call, there was a a campus called Bradford College. You know what? You guys can hear it on the recording from last week. But long and short, 
it, this campus is the well for foreign missions, for world missions. The United States, the first missionary endeavor was actually from this physical location. So it was in 2000 that I actually began writing emails to Lou saying, I think the Lord wants to raise up another Moravian lampstand. And for those of you that don't know what a Moravian lampstand is, I actually read last week, which I'm not going to take the time, but I highly recommend this book right here. It's called The Lost Art of Intercession. And this is actually how I began to understand of the Moravians. In short, in a nutshell, so you can get it, in Herrenhut, Germany, this watchtower actually right here is where the Moravians prayed. It was a hundred year prayer vigil that took place. Basically, they prayed day and night nonstop for 100 years. But it's also recorded historically that it was because of this group of people that the largest missionary endeavor that the earth has ever seen was released. And it was also recorded that really virtually the first and second great awakening, although it was years after this, that large in part it could actually be traced back toward these people of the Moravians. That even the revivalists of New England, that their lives were touched by the seeds of faith that they saw in the Moravians. So basically just the scope and the influence that comes from a group, a community of young people that devote themselves first and foremost to the place of prayer, but how the Spirit of God ruined their heart and from that they touched the ends of the earth. That they burned for missions. So really it's the model of prayer and missions and the marrying of prayer and missions, but that's actually um, where my heart got envisioned for it. But I began to, when I looked at this well of foreign missions in Massachusetts, here we are, that this is the history of it, I just began to really get a vision and a dream in my spirit that a missions movement that in the past where they failed and ultimately missions has burned out and they've labored and they've toiled but they've seen limited fruit but really this model of prayer and missions that that is the way that Christ intended it and if we were to see the Moravian lampstand raised up in our generation we could see the fulfillment of Jonathan Edwards an extraordinary move of prayer that brings the gospel to the nations of the earth so it was really during that time in 2002 I shared last week kind of a multiple series of the way that the Lord spoke, whether through dreams or visions or prophets regarding this property. Um, but in short, in the midst of really believing that God wanted to raise something up on this particular property in Massachusetts, I went to Pasadena, California. And while I was in Pasadena, Lou actually brought us all together to say, let's all move here together and let's start a house of prayer. And really at that time, I just kept saying, my heart is burning for something in the New England area. I'm called there, I'm bound there. I know it looks like there isn't much happening there now, but my heart is married to that land. And it was at that time, actually, I had never heard of a man named John Armott, but I stepped onto the campus where Lou and others were holding a conference, and when I stepped onto the campus, there was the face of a man over the auditorium. It was just this massive painted face. But as soon as I saw his face, I began trembling and weeping and really manifesting. It was something completely unnatural that was happening to me. But it was in that moment that Lou said, this is a window into your destiny and your future. And Therese happened to have a camera, snapped a shot, long story short. Um, I had no idea who this man was or why I was reacting the way that I was when I saw his face. But when I actually came back to Massachusetts, I was sitting with a history book, reading about Bradford College, the Well of Foreign Missions, and a friend of mine was sitting across the table with her history book, reading about Bradford College, the Well of Foreign Missions. But while her book was open, I happened to notice the name John Armott 
was written on the page of her history book about Radford College. So obviously that grabbed my attention. I just had this divine encounter in Pasadena. I come back and now his name is written and somehow in relation to the college. So when I pulled the book and began to read it, basically what it uncovered was this very college campus that I had been praying and believing that the Lord was gonna raise up a prayer and missions movement on that physical location, this well. Um, basically John Armott, who was in California and that's where his missions movement was, he had come to Bradford, and there's actually a monument there today. We could all go there and visit it sometimes. But there's actually a monument there today. But basically what happened was, is in 1810, just a little quick brief history here, 1810, the first missionaries were sent overseas from America. His name was Adoniram Judson and Anne Hazeltine. They went to Burma, India. But basically they're sent overseas to, yes, Gordon, Adoniram Judson, it's all the same. Um, they're sent overseas. Well, a hundred years later, this man, John Armott, comes on the scene. And basically, it's been 100 years. And what he says is he believes that God wants to raise up another missions movement. But he has the insight and the foresight to know that he needs to go to the physical well and pray that God would raise it up and release it once more. So he brings his... his Californian booty over to Bradford, Massachusetts. He stands and you can actually read his speech and where basically what he says is that the fathers of the former generation had visions and dreams. They had visions and dreams to see the world evangelized. And then he says, but their visions were not realized. And he said, but it's our job as sons and daughters to pick up the dreams and the visions of the past generations of the fathers of old and to believe and this became his watchword for the student missions movement that for the evangelization of the world in one generation that's what he was believing for talk about a big vision how many of you wake up in the morning and go it is my what life's calling to see the evangelization of the world in one generation or how about jayhop boston or whatever uh, identities we have in this room, that it's our life's calling to see the evangelization of the world in one generation. I mean, it sounds grandiose, huge, and I will say almost like borderline impossible, but in essence, it really isn't. It's, it's really not intangible, but it really goes back to this root of the place of prayer, the upper room, the Axe Company, that from the place of prayer, the extraordinary exploits that were birthed and that were released. So anyway, fast forward. So obviously at that point, the Lord really has my attention as far as this campus and what he's going to do. Um, so then it's actually from that point, I'm in <coughs> Redding, California, a year later, and a different prophet comes up to me, a man that I've never met. He's on staff out there at Bethel. And as he approaches me, the first thing he starts to say is, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. Your eyes burn for new another student volunteer missions movement. And he says, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? And I mean, at that point, I was prayer walking it four or five times a week. I mean, it was like something that I was believing for, dreaming for, this well of prayer and foreign missions. Um, so anyway, he basically gives me this word. It's another sign of confirmation. It's basically after that point that Lou had contacted me and said, because they had a J-hop in D.C., and basically what he wanted was to birth a J-hop in Boston. And it was through a series of events we launched the 40 days, March 1st through April 9th of 2006, which is pretty much why we're all here today, is basically the beginning of that. Um, so it was during those 40 days, I actually, oh no, it was after the 40 days, we got plunked here. You can hear all the details as far as pretty much a team of four in a one-bedroom apartment, how the Lord supernaturally provided for us. 
But it was during that time when we got our first house, signed the lease for $3,900. I had no income for me or for our ministry. had no way to feed, feed people. <laughs> um, but just knew it was the Lord. But somebody provided a trip for me to go to here in Het, Germany. Um, and so I was actually able to go. And it was once again the Lord really confirming to me that he was going to raise up this Moravian lampstand as it was like really at the inception and in the birthing of our community. So we rent this house down the street for one year. At the end of the year, we basically have to transition out of the house. And this was the house that we moved into after that. This house, don't have time to tell it, um, supernatural uh, turn of events. Somebody just gave me the 14000 so we had first, last, security and realtor fee. Also secured the entire rent, the 4500 for the entire first year, and offered to pay it. I mean, just like crazy supernatural provision after one after another. But what I have to say is while, um, while there, this was houses being finished built, it, even though I had the money guaranteed, all of that, while it was being built, it was delayed three months. So basically, I and my team members were homeless. I mean, like homeless. Had no place to pray, had no place to sleep. I basically told my team, go back home to your family. I can, all of our stuff went in storage. I shared last week how the house, the first house that we had, it was all furnished in an entire day. It was a five bedroom, three bath, humongous house. <laughs> and in one day, all the furnishings, well, all those furnishings had to go in storage for three months because I had no place to put them. This house was not complete. And in that time, I actually was in Kansas City staying with friends. And to be very honest, there was a lot of people that basically just said, Bethany, it, the road is too hard in Boston. There's too many obstacles. Why don't you just pack it up and make Kansas City your home? It's, you know, we're doing House of Prayer. It's very similar vision. But I just kept going, but the Lord has spoken so clearly to me about Boston and New England. My heart burns to see the wells of revival and I'm going to be very honest with you guys. At this point, I wasn't married. Um, it, it was a, and at that point, because I sent everybody home, I didn't even know who would be coming back as a team with me. So I was very realistically looking at being on my own completely. <laughs> um, but I remember I was sitting in someone's living room in Kansas City, and I, this is what I said to the Lord. I said, God, you have spoken to me so clearly. You have, um, I mean, just between prophetic words and even the provision of finances, I said, there is not... There shouldn't be a shadow of doubt in my mind as far as what you've called me to do and that I must go back. And this is what I said, but in your mercy, would you just speak to me one more time so I have the confidence to go back to Austin and labor there? It was literally in that moment I got a text message from somebody and they said immediately turn on God TV because Wendy Alec is prophesying about Boston. As soon as, I mean, I literally turned on my, the, the thing to God TV, and as I'm watching it, basically she was having a normal interview with somebody. The topic had nothing to do with New England, Boston, foreign missions or anything. As she's interviewing the gentleman, she literally just starts manifesting, just saying, I feel the Spirit of God. I see missionaries. Missionaries are coming to Boston to labor in day and night prayer, and then missionaries are being released to the ends of the earth. I mean, let me just be honest. I'm sure there was a lot of reasons that the Lord just dropped on her with the spirit of prophecy right then and there. But the fact that I just said, God, in your mercy, would you just speak to me one more time of what you've given me vision for in Boston? And in his mercy, he once again gives a word, like, in the my moment of crisis. <laughs> so there I go, packing my bags to come back to Boston. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> um, I know, it's just, but I'm just saying the irony it is that crazy as far as how clearly the Lord has spoken ridiculously to embolden us. 
Um, there was another time I actually, I have a book, for those of you that have never heard me share this story, it's called The Ten Greatest Revivals in History. It's one of my favorite books in studying um, revival history. This was actually in um, 2003. Oh. Um, it was actually in 2003, and basically what had happened was I was going someplace to go, I was supposed to lead a prayer meeting, but they asked me to pray on... Um, I mean, I'm sorry, share on prayer and intercession. And as I was leaving, um, I ran upstairs and I just thought, I should just grab that book in, in case I decide I want to reference it. So as I ran up the stairs, as soon as I put my hand on the book, I wasn't asking for a word from the Lord. I wasn't, I, I think I was in a season of fasting, but I wasn't like in any kind of great travail or intercession. I put my hand upon the book, the book, The Ten Greatest Revivals in the History of Man, and I heard the audible thundering voice of God. Like undeniably in a way I have never heard it before or since to the point that it shook my physical body. Um, but as I laid my hand on the book, he just so broke into my ordinary and my mundane. And he so clearly said, as my hand was on that book, he said, the greatest revival in the history of man is within your womb. And mind you, not my womb, the womb of our generation. And you guys have to, what you have to understand is that language has become very ordinary to hear. I've heard um, like Mike Bickle and um, Bill Johnson say it since then. But this was at a point in time where no one was talking about the greatest revival in the history of man. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know if I was being biblically sound. Like I thought, I can't share that with anybody. That just sounds crazy. Like the greatest revival in the history of man. I can just remember thinking like, that just sounds so... But, I mean, honestly, now, years later, it actually is something that has been given language and articulation to, and it is being said, and it doesn't sound audacious, and even more than that, it's actually biblical. <laughs> so there's biblical authority to that. But I just remember when the Spirit of God broke in with such a clear word, it once again was such a, that the fact that the Lord had sown my heart to New England, that there's something in the womb of this generation that is, it far surpasses the first, the second great awakening. It surpasses Azusa Street. It surpasses the Wales revival. All of these revivals, they, they had a manifestation of a character of God or the nature of God. Some were known for healing. Some were known for salvation. There were different realities that were birthed through each one of those revivals. But the revival that is in the womb of this generation, it literally is the greatest revival in the history of man because it brings together the accumulation of the ages. It brings together the reality that Jonathan Edwards labored in birth. It brings together the reality that, that Evan Roberts birthed. It brings together all of those realities. And in one generation, it's the fulfillment of Habakkuk. It's prophesied in scripture that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. It's a biblical promise that in one generation, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to be released with such force, which, with such strength, with such authority that it's his glory. It's nothing less. See, we've known portions. We've known measures. We've known trickles. We've known, we've kind of stuck our toe in it, but it, it says the glory of God, which is ultimately what all of creation is groaning and waiting for. It is why you are discontent. It is why you cannot find even peace, even in the midst of a, a Sunday service reality. It's because your inner man 
knows you were born for the glory of God. It's why you get disgruntled with the preacher. Because you're looking for something more. Because your soul is yearning and groaning for the glory of God. The very manifestation of Christ. It's honestly... I'm not excusing it, but it's why you get offended in your communities because you look to the face of man thinking that he can give something to you and he does not have what you are aching for. What you are aching for is the glory of God. It's the groaning of all creation. Uh, some of you in this room, the very depression that you labor under... It's because you haven't found your place and even that the place in the place of prayer of wrestling and groaning for the glory of God. And when we're in that place that we can rightly channel our discontentment, in that place where we can rightly posture the aching of our heart instead of turning it upon peers and family members or our work situation or if I just had more money or if I just had more time, all of those frustrations accumulate to this. You are groaning for the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. You are yearning for the glory of God. And it's only in that place that your heart is satisfied. It's only in that place that you find what you're created for. What you are destined and ordained for. No amount of money, no amount of prestige, no, no amount of degrees. No amount of relationships. You can think if I just get to this point in my life. All of those things, I'm going to tell you, are going to end up in disillusionment and despair. Because it is the glory of God that you're yearning for. All of those things will even end up in a place of disillusionment. Because it's the glory of God that you are aching for. So it was in that, that moment that the Lord spoke so thunderous to my spirit that the greatest revival in the history of man is within your womb. Sorry, I'm getting pictures of my son. He's, <laughs> he's, on, a, he's on a Valentine date with my parents. I know, so cute. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so the word that I had, the greatest revival. <laughs> I didn't get any pictures of that. So. He didn't. Well, he looks happy, so <laughs> that's a good thing. Oops. Um, so I said all that to say, um, oh, this is actually one other really fun and one of my favorite testimonies. As we, I was, we were, so along the way, this is kind of, let's just be honest, this is our human nature. The Lord speaks, he thunders, he's so clear, he affirms, he does all of that, and we're all like hippy skippy high on Jesus, and then a week later we're going, where's God? God. <laughs> I mean, it just shows our nature that we need daily encounter, like we need to hear from him. So we're in the house, the Lord's provided, we're all settled, here we go, or, you know, back in the, and I can remember one morning I'm sitting on the couch over here, and I basically, because, let's just be honest, what we're dreaming for, what we're praying for, if you've ever been in any of our prayer sets, we're not really praying for, like, a small, minute, God, raise up a church in Boston, and just give us a building, and Bless us with money and people, and that'd be cool. I mean, we're really praying, ultimately, for an extraordinary move of prayer, that the gospel goes to the nations of the earth, and the evangelization of the world in one generation. <laughs> there you go. So I'm sitting there, and I basically say, you know, to the Lord, 
Um, as you guys know, John Armott, my hero, the Lord had spoken to me over and over again. Well, I wanted this book, totally wanted this book, but on a missionary budget, I was eating oatmeal for a year that was donated. I had no money, so I couldn't afford it. <laughs> so I really, I found it on eBay, and basically when I came to the point that I could buy it, I actually decided instead of buying it for myself, I would actually buy something I desperately wanted and sow it as a seed into somebody else's life as, as, as a sacrifice, really. But this is what I said as I was ordering the book. I said, God, if this is not just a pipe dream and something that I just dreamt up because I ate bad pizza one night, if this is really you, I'm asking, would you provide me the same book? And I just said, if it's you, I'm going to sow this into another person, uh, th this one that I was ordering. And I said, but would you provide me the same book to confirm to my heart that this is truly you that has initiated this? That very day, <laughs> I went to my P.O. box for J-Hop, and there was actually a package in the mail the same day that I asked the Lord to provide me a book. And this book, it's actually, it's a, it's a far better book than this one. It's like, it has multiple more editions and speeches and writings of the missions movement and the convention, but Lou and Therese had sent it, and it came in the mail that very day that I asked for the Lord for a sign that he would sow it into my life if it was truly a word from him. Um, <clears throat> so like I said, just along the way, there's just the continual confirmation and affirmation. Um, <clears throat> let me just see if there's any other... Oh, and so the guy, basically the Reading guy that had prophesied over me in Reading about um, Bradford College, were in this building... The Reading folks had heard about a Justice House of Prayer in Boston. They heard like what God was doing, what God was establishing, so they decided to take a trip here. And he doesn't know that I'm the girl leading the House of Prayer that he prophesied over years before, blah, blah, blah. He shows up on the doorstep, and I say to him, I'm like, I know you, you prophesied over me in Reading. And I kind of give him the whole rundown. He looks at me, and then he begins to prophesy that the mantle of John Whitthrift that the Lord has given us, and as I told you earlier, he was another one of what had really initiated this process in my heart because he was the first governor of Massachusetts and he's who actually set the covenant and gave language to the dream of God's heart of Boston being a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples. And what he said was, is it the mantle of John, uh, John Winthrop that God has given you to actually restore it to its rightful purpose as a city set upon a hill. And so time after time, and t here we are to present day, we actually just did um, <clears throat> 40 days of prayer and fasting a year ago, which is when we launched our public prayer sets that most of you have probably come to know us through. Um, in 2009, uh, Daryl and I were ordained, and for those of you that don't know, he was actually working full-time. I was leading the house of prayer, and my inward prayer, I don't think he even knew this, because he pretty much just said, we'll continue doing this as long as um, is necessary. He was working, but I had said to the Lord, I said, God, if you do not provide for my husband to be full-time, and labor with the building of the house of prayer. I just absolutely can't do it with my young son and all the responsibilities. The day we were ordained, somebody sat down with us afterwards and offered to pay his salary so he could be full-time. And so he's been full-time ever since. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. And interesting, I don't know what it means, but we were ordained October 11th um, of 2009, and then October 11th of this last year is actually when we closed on our house. Um, so October 11th is obviously... <laughs> A wonderful date in my book. Well, I know. What's going to happen this October 11th? <laughs> mm. So anyhow, but that's just basically for those of you that weren't here, a really brief, concise, fast forward um, look at kind of basically our history and how we are established here. Um, but basically, 
what I want you to hear from that is number one, us launching a church. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you. I am in no way out to build a mega ministry. My only dream or vision for masses of people is that multitudes would fall head over heels madly in love with Jesus Christ. I want to see multitudes in love with the man Christ Jesus and willing to follow him to the ends of the earth. So if I have a dream of seeing multitudes in the city of Boston, it's multitudes in love with Jesus. But to be honest with you, I'm not the kind of person that to build a large ministry, I'm willing to, for the sake of unity, silence a message or become something that is palatable so we can gather the numbers. I'm going to be very honest. I would rather stay the group that we are now and come to such a strength of constitution and clarity, operating under the prophetic strength of the spirit of Elisha, and truly be a voice in the midst of culture that God can use to become the hinge of history. I would rather have a handful of 10 to 15 and know that we are postured rightly before the heart of God, that we truly, out of sincere love for Jesus Christ, will obey him, that that is our only allegiance. Our allegiance is not to build a movement. Our allegiance is not to build a church. Our allegiance is not to gather numbers. Our allegiance isn't to anything outward. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and him and him alone. And like I said, in that, I do desire, hear me, I dream and I yearn for such a worship movement to explode in this city that multitudes are drawn to Jesus, but not in a, in a false, even a, even a false sense of unity where it becomes a palatable message. I want the fullness of the gospel preached with power, the, the power of the cross, of who he has called us to be. And really what we're going to look at is the life of Elisha, and we're going to look at the life of Daniel. Because really those, if you ever wonder why we take the position that we do or the posture we do in the place of prayer, if you even ever wonder why we take the position or posture that we do concerning political issues or cultural issues of our day, really all you'll need to do is just go back to the life of Elisha and the life of Daniel and you'll have great biblical clarity as to why we posture ourselves the way that we do as a people. I'm going to read a quote to you. It's actually a quote by Lou Engle. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's, there are moments in history when a door for massive change opens. Great revolutions for good or for evil occur in the vacuum created by these openings. It is in these times that key men and key women, even entire generations, will risk everything to become the hinge of history. That pivotal point that determines which day and way the door will swing. Now, I just got done sharing with you kind of the way that the Lord has led me and spoken to me re regarding revival in our generation. And so if there is a door to be opened, if you're going to hear this quote about moments in history for a door for massive change, I believe the possibility is before us in our generation, the way that the Lord has spoken, is a door for massive revival to open. I believe, so if we're standing, but I also believe that we are a nation, and I don't really have time tonight, maybe another week we can do this. Um, if you're going to rightly diagnose where we are as a nation, you have to understand that basically uh, more than 80 years ago, it, it was proven that we had more than 80% Christian church engagement in America. 
That means that decisions, morality, even voting, that 80% of the population was governed by a biblical worldview. Now, present day, we actually, in America, it's 2% of our culture. I'm not, I'm not saying 2% of our culture attends church on a Sunday morning. I'm saying, because there's way more than that that are sitting in pews. I'm saying 2% of our culture, it's proven that in issues of voting, in issues of morality, so they may be coming to church, but then they're sexually promiscuous and having abortions. So I'm talking about the kind of Christianity that it infects, affects every dimension of your life, that we're not necessarily just looking to theorize Christianity, but actualize Christianity. There's a huge difference and there's a huge gap between theorizing what a religion is and what your belief system is and being able to articulate it and the gap between actualizing what the Bible says and wrestling for the reality of that. Amen. So that's what actually the 2% in our generation is. So needless to say, it's a whole other message. We are in a crisis in America. And I mean, if, if I won't even get into it, but maybe just look into issues with Iran and Israel and maybe just look into, yeah, that's a whole other day. That's like, <laughs> we're in a crisis. <laughs> you can talk to me after if you don't want to agree with that statement. But with crisis, this is why I read Lou Engel's quote, is because with crisis, there is a door of change, a massive door that opens, but specifically the reason, I mean, this has been my favorite quote for probably 12 years, because it says, great revolutions for good or for evil occur in that vacuum. It is in these times that key men and key women, even entire generations, risk everything to become the hinge of history, the pivotal point that determines which way the door will swing. And when I said to you, that I'm not necessarily my allegiance is into building a movement, this is exactly why. I would rather see a company of people, key men and key women, even raise up an entire generation that are willing to risk everything to be the door of change, to be the door by which revival can be released to an entire generation. See, and we actually, and this is why we're going to look at Elisha. If you turn to 1 Kings 17, Basically, the story of Elisha is that this man was born in one of the darkest hours of Israel's history. Dark. Can you just say, actually in a, a, um, 1 Kings 16.30, it says of Ahab that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any that went before him. Dark. Just say dark. It was a dark moment in history. So if you want to look at America and somehow think that we're in a more difficult situation or a, a, a more um, almost impossible situation, that is absolutely not the case. Could you imagine them saying of Ahab that he did more wicked than all of those that went before him? That's a frightening situation that Israel was in. But it was, it was Elisha's calling it was the call of his life to literally turn an entire nation back to God. One of the darkest hours of human history for, for Israel, the darkest day that they know. And Elisha comes on the scene, and it is his calling to turn an entire nation back to God. I'm actually just going to reference for you. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 1.17, some of you may be very familiar with it. It's actually referencing Elisha, and this is why I'm bringing him up even now. It says, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elisha to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient back to the wisdom of righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
and the wisdom and power of Elisha. The power and the wisdom of Elisha was to turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of righteousness. If we ever needed the power and the wisdom of Elisha, it is now to turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of righteousness. Ultimately, that is what these universities need. They need some, uh, some anointed sons and daughters, anointed preachers and proclaimers that would be used to turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of righteousness. It actually, Elisha is also referenced in Malachi 4, 5. It says, this is speaking of the last days. It says, behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the coming of the great day of the Lord. This is before the return of Jesus. He's saying, I will send you the spirit of Elisha during that day. And once again, he actually says, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. Now, let's just say this. Francis Frangipane says that if the spirit of Elisha is coming, if it is prophesied that before Jesus returns, that the spirit of Elisha is coming, then we also have to understand what that means. It means Elisha came in response, and he was a prophet because of the wickedness of Jezebel. So that's rightly understanding that in the days of Elisha, that spirit of Jezebel, and for those of you, I'll just give you a quick snapshot of Jezebel. Um, if you go, go move ahead to chapter 18, it says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elisha in the third year, saying, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Jump, jump to verse 4. And so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, massacred the prophets of the Lord. For those of you that don't know, as far as the prophets of Baal, that's basically who she, she wanted to remove the prophets of the Lord, put the prophets of Baal in place. But for those of you that don't understand, Baal basically is a god of fornication, of sexual perversion. So what this is speaking, it's saying, in the last days I will send to you the spirit of Elisha. Understanding that that is the time where that, that Jezebel spirit is really raging, that spirit of perversion. But what do we see through Jezebel? It was the silencing of the prophets. The silencing of the word of God. And this is why I said to you, I am not after a movement for number's sake. What we need more than anything in this generation is the clarity of the word of the Lord. We need those like Elisha with such a clear voice of righteousness. As it was said of him, he turned the disobedient back to the wisdom of righteousness. We don't need people that are willing to appease culture and appease even young Christians that want a false grace message just to feel good. What we need is those that are willing to call a generation to righteousness. The prophetic voice of clarity restored. See, what we have in this generation and in our culture, we have such a call for tolerance. It permeates every, even those of you in Christian colleges, there is such a permeating attitude of tolerance, of being all accepting, of being all embracing. And what we need to understand is, let's just lay this as the groundwork. For those of you that may not know my heart, we embrace and accept and love any sinner. Any sinner is accepted and loved because we love them as a person. But we do not accept and love and embrace the confusion surrounding sin. The biblical authority of the word of God is what governs. 
not the, the, the popularity of culture of the day. Yeah. And this is, this, is really, <laughs> this is really why when I talk about movements, is oftentimes when I sit with pastors and leaders, and even in their wrestle, because they genuinely want to create a movement, they genuinely want to create kind of a massive um, presentation of the body of Christ, of standing in unity and stadiums filled, all of those things. What we need to understand is anything apart from the clarity of the spirit of Elisha, anything apart from this prophetic clarity of calling a generation, when we begin to come into that place of tolerance, when we begin to come into that place of not wanting to offend the mind of man, when we come to that place, oftentimes when I sit in these meetings and even, um, this kind of language is used. While, Bethany, you may be called to confront culture, I feel called to come alongside culture. Uh, this is what I'm going to say. Most oftentimes when I'm sitting, and I'm talking about young leaders, and I'm hearing them out of, like, weighing, is this the Lord? I'm, I'm, th there's no judgment. What I'm going to say to you is that whatever our strategy for ministry building, if it's, if it's not found in the Word of God, I in no way see Jesus the Apostle Paul, I in no way see the men of old coming alongside culture. What I see is them standing in the authority of the Word of God and holding this as a beacon of light and hope. Everything that this Word is, is contrary to the ways of man. And when we come to the place that we don't want to offend the mind of man, but we want to appease the mind of man, that, I'm going to be honest with you, that is the place where we deny the very nature of Christ. We deny the God of the Bible in that place. And our allegiance is to the man Christ Jesus. I guarantee you there will be a movement that comes, and it will draw masses, but you know what it's for? It's because there are young people and young men and young women that are waiting for a clear call. That are waiting for a call for something that is worth dying for. See, what we need to understand is that the power of the gospel is not a mamby-pamby gospel, live your way and then repent. It is the power of the gospel that it calls us, take up your cross and follow Amen. after me. Amen. See, the thing is, is in the heart of every man and woman, we were born for passion. We were born to live for something beyond ourselves. And what we've done is we have taken the gospel, and I'm going to use this word, and I hope you understand my heart, we've dumbed it down. We've dumbed it down. Make it cost nothing. It requires nothing. It's easy to enter, easy. Yes, it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But there is a place and there is a call, and I'm going to tell you it is why the Muslim faith is growing. It is because in our humanity, we know we were created to live for something beyond ourselves. There is something invigorating when you realize that what you are living for is worth dying for. But when what you're living for fades as quick as the day, it fades by next week, that is why in Christianity we are bored and confused. Amen. That is why we have a lack of fascination with the Word of God. Because we lack that clarity and that understanding that He has beckoned us to come and He has beckoned us to die, that we might exchange our life for His. That is the great Amen. exchange. Amen. Good. So the story of Elisha ultimately is that story in and of itself. I'm going to read to you just a couple of other 
passages out of here, and then I want us to move on to Daniel. In 1 Kings... <clears throat> In the midst of this spiritual seduction, Elisha strides onto the scene to confront Ahab and Jezebel in their legions of pagans. In the midst of unspeakable depravity, Elisha stood as the singular voice of righteousness. Singular. Singular voice of righteousness. One man. One man. See, when we look at the life of Elisha and the life of Daniel today, this is why, as much as I yearn for the masses to worship Jesus, it does not take the masses to shift culture. It does not take large numbers of people. It takes one man like Elisha. One man like Elisha with, with solidarity. He was the singular voice of righteousness, but he refused to be moved. I just read to you, as far as Jezebel, that she had massacred the prophets in 1 Kings 18.4, Silencing of the prophetic clarity, the church must come out of the closet of confusion and intimidation. The political, I just shared this, but the political cry of this nation is toleration. Today, toleration means more, more and more. Um, <clears throat> we accept you as you are, even though we may disagree. The new definition of tolerance is now, not only do we accept you, but your views are true if you believe them. <laughs> you know what, this voice of toleration, really what it comes down to is there is no absolutes. No absolutes. And we become extremely offensive when we say, no, there is an absolute. It is the absolute of the Bible and what the Bible says. You know, I, I, I encourage all of you um, to go to the Bound for Life website. For those of you that don't know what it is, um, boundforlife.com. While we were just out there with Lou for these couple of days, um, one of the other... Um, J-Hop Leaders, he also is the president of Bound for Life, and on his blog, you can watch this video, it will shake you to the core. He's, the guy is a Yale graduate, he actually was like the president of VeggieTales at one point, but he's written two books. <laughs> he's written two books, one was um, the Bonhoeffer biography that just came out, he wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote, he's, he's written a couple things, but I say this to say, Last week was the National Prayer Breakfast, which President Obama went to. This dude was the speaker. He got 30 minutes in front of President Obama. And I'm going to be honest with you. He's intellectual. He's definitely not like a Lou Angle up there rocking and spitting and telling dreams and vision stories. Um, very intellectual. Hilariously funny. But this man spoke truth with such clarity and conviction. I actually kept turning to Lou kind of going, oh my gosh, she's dressed in a suit and tie and has a completely different demeanor, but he's saying the things that you say with the same force and clarity. This guy literally in front of President Obama, this is what he stood up and he said, 3,000 people, it's the National Prayer Breakfast. He said basically, in the days of slavery, most people didn't believe that blacks were human. So everyone was okay with slavery. And he said, but yet you had William Wilberforce, and it was because of his relationship with Jesus Christ that this man had clarity and understanding, and he could see that they were human, looking at President Obama. He said, then you have, in the, in the days of Nazi Germany, they did not believe the Jews were human. But then once again, you have a man who, claiming the name of Christ, you have Dietrich Bonhoeffer who comes on the scene. 
And because of the light of Christ, he has true understanding, and he fights for those that everyone says is not human. It's because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he stands and he says, now in our generation, who is it that we think is not human? And then, very comically, he says, discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> but then he proceeds to say, he says, if you call yourself a Christian, but the light of Christ's truth has not shown in your heart that you have revelation of the unborn being human, I, I doubt your Christianity. That's what he said. And this is what I'm going to say. What stuck out the most to me with this man is he didn't do the nice political, well, I believe... And my belief is that there, and you might not, I mean, there's such a wavering that starts to happen, even in the church. Well, it's my belief. No, stand with the authority and the convictions that you stand in the place of truth. That is the place of confidence. He didn't stand there and say, I happen to believe. He said, if you have the light of Jesus Christ in your heart, then you will know that the unborn are human. But you know, there's many in our political arena that claim to be Christians, but they vote pro-choice. And what he did right there is he confronted that hypocrisy in Christianity, saying, you know what, if the light of Christ is truly shown in your heart, you don't need anybody to tell you that they're human. The Spirit of God will give revelation of life. Just like he did for the slave, and just like he did for the Jew. But see, what happens is, is in our day and in our time, we all want to be politically correct. Mm. Yeah. We all want to, even with the issue of the slaughtering of 50 million babies, for some reason no one wants to raise up a voice. and looks like they're contrary to popular opinion. Mm. See, this was Elisha. He stood with that kind of clarity, unwavering, even in the midst of prophets being massacred. Do you know what that means? It means that he stood the very real risk of being massacred himself, but yet he did not try to preserve his own life. He was willing to put it all on the line because he had fallen in love with the man Christ Jesus. Love that was willing to go to death. Love that said, I would rather stand in truth and die than be counted amongst the numbers of those in utter confusion. See, that is the place that we have to come to as a people. Because yes, I do believe that there's going to be extraordinary revival in America. But I also believe that we will continue. It's like Isaiah says it beautifully. Isaiah basically says that the dark is going to get darker while the glory of God increases. And I, I dare to say this to you. It is those sons and daughters that are willing to stand and even be counted as the radical ones in allegiance to Jesus Christ. That the glory of God is going to shine and they'll shine in the midst of darkness. But those that stand in fear and wanting to preserve their own life and live with the culturally relative Christianity of the day, they'll be swept away. I, I, I vow to you today, now is the time for all of us to come to such a place of radical devotion to a prayer life, 
of radical devotion to Jesus now, so in the day of testing, we can stand. That our heart has been prepared. I'm going to just move really quickly. Um, I love, love, love. This is um, Ignatius of Antioch. It just has to do with what I just shared with you. He says, the greatness of Christianity lies in it being hated by the domination system, meaning like the earthen system, when he says domination system. The greatness of Christianity lies in being hated by the domination system, this cosmos, not in being convincing to it. That, that is the true measure of Christianity. Christ was hated and despised and persecuted and rejected. He wasn't convincing to it. <laughs> um, I'm just going to move really quick so we can wrap up here onto Daniel 10. Um, Daniel, this is the other, like I said, if you ever have a question of why we take the stances that we take, the posture that we take in the place of prayer, this is for clarity and understanding. Daniel 10, basically what you have here, for those of you that don't know the life of Daniel, basically Daniel was in Babylonian captivity. And here's Daniel, in reading the scriptures, he comes across the prophecies of Jeremiah. So first and foremost, I just want to say that everything that Daniel prayed and the, and the way that he moved, he was moving in agreement with the prophecy of, the, of, of Scripture. He didn't get like some flighty, crazy, weird like revelation. I think it might be time for us to be ready. He had the authority of the Word of God that he was moving in the power of agreement. So he basically gets this window and so as he's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, going, it is our time for release. And the fulfillment of time has come, and it's my time for release. So here's this young man, and I just want to preface this by saying it says, from the days of his youth, from the days of his youth, he prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. From the days of his youth, he would not partake of the king's table, the delicacies of the king. He lived a fasted lifestyle. Daniel had this window into the place of understanding because, number one, his posture in prayer, but number two, he joined it with, with the secret of fasting. So you have Daniel, basically, and he gets this window into it, our time of fulfillment has come. It is our time of release. And basically, if you start to look into Daniel chapter 10, what you begin to see is, number one, as he was fasting and praying, it was 21 days that he was fasting. And then you see this, this window here. Verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved. This is a sermon for a whole other day. Three times he's referred to as greatly beloved. Yeah. There's a reason. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. The angel of the Lord comes in response to Daniel's prayers. Furthermore, when we read on, he basically gives this window, but the prince, uh, the, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. And then he goes on to give him a vision. Number one that you have to understand 
is literally the angels of the Lord were moving in response to the prayers of Daniel. Moving in response to weak humanity. Not in response to a huge stadium filled with men and women crying out, but moving in response to one singular man. One singular man whose heart was postured before God and was agreement with the heart of God. If he can find one man in agreement with his heart. One man in agreement with his heart for Boston, for New England, for America. One man in agreement with his heart, Daniel, greatly beloved. See, we have to understand, and I'm just going to say, and I don't have time to debate the theology of it with you right now. But we have to understand that this gives us a window into the realms of possibility in prayer. But it also gives us a realm into understanding how the purposes of God are released. Yeah. How the fulfillment of God's purposes come to pass. That he does not move apart from weak hu humanity. That he chooses to bind himself to finding the prayer of agreement upon the earth. See, this right here is a window into if we supposedly think that somehow the revival cloud is just going to come in because God speaks it into existence, desires it, wills it into being. All throughout history, look at the way that the Lord used Elisha. He used Elisha to turn Israel back to him. He used Daniel to release the Israel people from captivity, that the fullness of time had come. What if he had not found an Elisha? What if he had not found a Daniel? How many of the purposes of God are frustrated because there is not a man to stand in the place of agreement with his heart and with his will to call it into being? And this is why I say I would rather a small company of people that are willing to bind their life in the place of prayer, that are willing to walk before the Lord even as Daniel did in the place of prayer and fasting to see the release of the purposes of God. God is not mocked. The wheels of justice may turn slowly, but they are turning. Whether the water rises drop by drop, by drop, or whether by a floodgate, eventually the pressure is going to build and the floodgates will open. See, oftentimes in the place of prayer, we misjudge the way, the prime example, 21 days. 21 days, Daniel's praying and fasting. 21 days, and finally on the 21st day, the angel of the Lord breaks through. Well, let me ask you a question. What if day seven came and he thought, God is not responding to my prayer. See, Daniel is the picture of perseverance. Daniel is the picture of laboring with the heart of God until. Until the release comes. See, so many of you, whether it's praying for the ending of abortion, whether now many of us are praying into this issue of sex trafficking because it has become such a huge industry in our generation, or whether it's revival or for your college campus, it could be for the healing of a, a, a mother or a sibling that has cancer, any of these numerous things, what we need to understand is that we may not understand the timing of how things are released, but the wheels of justice are turning. You may not know when the full release comes, but the wheels of justice are turning. 
And maybe in a particular situation, instead of justice being unleashed like a floodgate, but there, but there is drop by drop by drop, and you do not know when the release will come. You do not know when the fulfillment of it will come. But we see in the life of Daniel that he postured his heart in that place. In the 21st day, breakthrough came. I need to wrap this up because we're at time now. But what I'm going to encourage us um, here with is five things that we see from Daniel's life. Number one was um, prayer was a way of life. Number two, purity was a way of life. Three, authority of the prophetic scriptures that he based his life and what he prayed into with the authority of prophetic scriptures. Four, it was accompanied by fasting. And five, he was totally committed to praying, even at the threat of being thrown into the lion's den. It's once again what we saw in Elisha's life, of even at the threat of being massacred, he stood in that place of solidarity. And really, this is why I said, I long for a massive movement of worship I long for multitudes to fall in love with Jesus. That's where I dream of stadiums. But when it really comes down to what I'm willing to live for and what I'm willing to die for, I'm not willing to build something that is large in scope or appearance, but you're lacking the strength of constitution, commitment, and prophetic utterance. But if we can find a company of people in the city of Boston, be it five, be it ten, that are willing to stand with the constitution of Elisha, the constitution of Daniel, I, mark my words, we will see the greatest revival in the history of man because history has proven it moves, it, he moves in response to the prayers of his people. I just want us to stand to our feet so we can close out in prayer. even as we have discussed and even reviewed these two weeks, Lord, the prophetic history of how you have destined, ordained, that you've spoken and confirmed and established and provided and emboldened us. <clears throat> Lord, with what you desire to do and release, Lord, in Massachusetts and New England and the ends of the earth, we recognize through your word, God, that you do not move independent of man or apart from man, but you move in response to the prayers of your people. And God, we ask, Lord, even as your word says in Chronicles, that your eye searches all of the earth. For a heart that is perfect towards you. 
God, I ask that when your eyes search the earth, God, that when you look upon Boston, Lord, that you would find hearts that are perfectly after you. God, even as that passage goes on to say, Lord, that you would show yourself strong on their behalf. God, we long for the manifestation of your strength in our generation. God, we long for you to reveal your face in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, in all of your greatness, oh God. God, we long for you to roar from your temple. God, we ask, Lord, that even as you found Daniel of old, God, even as you found Elisha of old, God, we say that we are yearning and jealous, God, that you would find, Lord, in this city, sons and daughters that stand with your heart in agreement. Let's clean. 